2: Good morning, it's 8.30 on Thursday, August 24th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, temperatures remain dangerously high across Mississippi. Doctors are reminding folks to try to stay cool while outdoors. Then, the state is seeking to overturn a federal court ruling that would allow roughly 30,000 felons who served their time to regain voting rights. Plus, the first baby drop box in Mississippi is dedicated. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The continued heat wave sweeping across Mississippi has created conditions that can increase the likelihood of heat-related illnesses. Illnesses like heat stroke, exhaustion, and dehydration can occur. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with Jeff Martinez, the director of sports medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Martinez says untreated heat illness can be life-threatening.
3: The longer that a person's body has hyperthermia, uh, which is increased core temperature, that can just lead to organ damage, uh, organ failure. Prior to that, we might see some neurological uh, symptoms where the athletes might get confused or become disoriented or have somewhat of a blank stare similar to someone who might have had a head injury where they've got these neurological problems. Sometimes the first couple of signs and symptoms of heat illness is it, it's vomiting because the the body is trying to expel heat. I think a lot of athletes in, in their kids they think, Oh, I you know, I, I had a big lunch or, you know, I ate something that I shouldn't have and, you know, I'm fine. That's why I'm throwing up what I tell them and what I always assume is that no, you're, you're throwing up because your body's trying to expel heat. And then one of the other ones that is very common but is often overlooked is chills. Um, we, we might think that's kind of strange for football players in the summer to get the chills, uh, but just think about any other illness that you or I may have had, like the flu. When you have a fever or an elevated core temperature, you, you get the chills. And anytime I've had an athlete say, "Yeah, I." I feel the chills. I immediately assume that they've got some sort of elevated core body temperature uh, and begin to cool them. Uh, So I would say those are the first signs and symptoms of hyperthermia.
2: Experts say it's best to stay out of the heat if possible, but many jobs in Mississippi operate primarily outdoors. Martinez says it's important for supervisors to recognize heat illnesses and make sure their employees get plenty of breaks and water?
3: Uh, hopefully their, their, their company or their supervisors can run their work shift just like a practice. And although they may be working, you know, an eight-hour day, uh, certainly frequent breaks, getting in the shade um, if they're wearing any type of protective equipment, taking taking that off while in the shade and consuming fluids about every 20 minutes, that can really... Help a lot if they can, if they've got portable fans. Um, that's great. I think you often you'll see a, a utility worker uh, working on the side of the road or in, you know, somewhere in the area and they've got a tent, portable tent set up to provide that shade. And that shade can really make a huge difference as, as much as like 10 to 15 degrees in, in the ambient temperature. So I think that's important for, uh, you know, workers that are outside during the heat.
2: Landscapers are among the many folks who have to face extreme heat during their work days. Our Michael Guidry speaks with Brian Self. He's the owner of Gardening by Brian. He says the heat is just a fact of life for his occupation and adjusts his schedule to avoid the hardest, hottest parts of the day.
4: Uh, usually it goes into four hours, maybe five. Um, and I kind of try to avoid the, the heat um, in the middle of the day, but sometimes I just can't. And I guess this is one of those days? Uh, yeah, it is. I think we're about to wrap up, so we're going to miss the 2 o'clock hour or so. Is this the only, um, is this the only like, uh, obligation you have today? It is not, no. Um, I think I'm going to call it quits after this and then uh, go and cool off. <laughs> oh, it's been like this for you know, at least two weeks. Have you had to change like, anything about the way you, you, you do things because of, because of this prolonged heat? Um, there have been some times when I have to uh, just go out at maybe five o'clock to go cut grass, for instance, um, and just you know work until it's dark out. Get up early in the morning, be out there at seven o'clock, and seven o'clock in the morning, and, and go in until you can't. And you do this pretty much every day. Yes. So you said you've been out here for about two hours, sometimes as long as four. What what are you what are you feeling like after the end of the day? Well, um, exhausted, um, kind of mentally not there um usually i'm not hungry during the day but i do it towards the uh, evening um out of it and and i guess the, the big question is i mean you're self-employed this is your, your business what would you do if you weren't out here in the heat <sighs> looking for a new job <laughs> if i wasn't out in the heat then i guess i wouldn't be collecting uh, any paychecks or anything and uh i'd be relying on the other half of the uh household well, thank you. I appreciate you taking some time to talk to us. Oh, you're
2: welcome. Emergency responders say it's urgent to call 911 if anyone is experiencing signs of heat stroke. Those symptoms include dry skin, shaking, and dizziness. Coming up, federal courts have ruled to grant felons their voting rights in Mississippi, but the state is appealing that decision. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
1: AutoCorrect on MPB Think Radio, helping you correct your auto problems. Our host is Coach Charlie Milton, ASC Certified Master Technician. Let
5: me help save you some money working on your cars. Listen to our
3: podcast, AutoCorrect.
1: Thanks to our sustaining members who provide ongoing monthly financial support. You can become a sustainer too. Go to MPBOnline.org and click donate now
2: at the top of the page. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A federal court ruling handed down a decision that would allow as many as 30,000 formerly incarcerated felons to regain their voting rights in Mississippi. The state is seeking to overturn that decision on appeal. There are 22 felony crimes that permanently strip someone's voting rights away in the state if convicted. Only a handful of states have these lifetime felony disenfranchisement laws. Our Mike McEwen speaks with Veronica Bilbo, a Mississippian who was previously convicted of a felony. She's now been released from prison. She's been out for four years but still can't vote.
6: I knew it had been on the books because that time, at the time of your release, they let you know that yeah, you, you know, you can't vote, you can't do, you know, your dos and don'ts. And so um, I found out, I guess, yesterday, a couple of days ago, that it was that it had struck down. You know, we had gotten all happy and excited that you know they had uh, voted to, you know, lift that ban, right? And just as everybody was excited about it, and the news, the word it and you know. Um, You know, I'm an advocate, so I was calling up people, letting them know, making sure they knew so they could, you know, get ready to be prepared to vote. Because a lot of people that I know that had been formerly incarcerated are quite productive citizens. And then we find out now that they tried to repeal it again. So it kind of took the life out of uh, a lot of the um, formerly incarcerated community, without a doubt.
7: Yeah, that's that's very understandable, that reaction. How important is the right to vote in terms of not only rehabilitating, but kind of being able to reintegrate into society after spending some time away? Well,
6: it's very important because it gives you a sense of purpose. You know, it's it's what we think of as a fundamental right, you know, as a citizen. And then to have that taken away for whatever crime that uh, you know, I, I, I can understand some crimes. You know, there, there but there are crimes that allow you to vote, and then they still tell you that you can't. But when you've done your time, you you know you've been productive, you hadn't had zero recidivism, and then you know for five, ten years, and then you find out you can vote, and then you can't. Then you find out you can vote, and then then you get all happy and excited, and find out you can't. Then then a problem ensues. So it's important because you know it's it's you know I've seen my mom, my dad, you know go to the polls and vote, you know all their lives, and as you know as a black woman, you know knowing the price was paid for us to be able to go and vote, then to find out we can't. So it's, like I say, the life was kind of taken out of me and others like me now to find out that they're repealing the law.
7: Had you been able to vote before your period of incarceration began? Yes. And had you voted before that? I had. So what was it like going from not only being able to vote, but actually participating in elections, to then not being able to, and to where we are now, where a part of the court has said that you and formerly incarcerated people across the state should be able to. And the state government has now appealed that.
6: Well, it's sad and it, it, it makes, you know, it makes you feel bad. And I guess I say it repeat myself and say that it kind of takes the life out of you um, to, you know, to get excited about something, something that you've done that you, the right was taken away and then you're find out that you're able to do it, you get excited, so it's disheartening because it feels like more of a a punishment. It's like you're still being punished for the crime that you committed and you did your time.
7: Yeah, I understand that. Did you read uh, maybe the argument or the decision that the judges released when they ruled that the law should be struck down? Do you know much about that?
6: Well, trying to, as um, much as i could, you know, you know, with this law, you know, from what I can understand, I'd never be considered as a citizen.
7: And that's even though you've already served your time, I was as was mandated by the court.
6: Right. Even though, you know, it's like eternal punishment.
7: I talked to somebody that also works at the Reach Foundation office. And something she mentioned was that this large group of people in Mississippi who are now will be able to vote if the decision is upheld in court, maybe things would be able to change for y'all, for people who are, you know, formerly released, formerly incarcerated, and are back into society. Do you see voting as a way to advocate better for that population?
6: I do. And it is. Because it's nothing like being something firsthand.
7: And can I ask you, how hopeful are you that the decision to strike down the law will be upheld
6: um because voting is a fundamental right i'm cautiously optimistic regardless we're going to continue to fight you know regardless of you know how it turns out it doesn't end you know just have to fight live you know start over you know put our bootstraps on and start over live live to fight another day that's what it's all about
7: have you been organizing for voting rights since the release four years ago?
6: Um, yes. I'm trying to help educate and passing out pamphlets and things and just making sure um, because I'm more comfortable with where I can you know, the people that I know and where I came from. I feel like, you know, uh, I can reach them um, better. But they're um, so trying to submit bills of surveys. Uh, cert-
7: why did you think it was important to get into that type of work yourself?
6: Because you have to give back. I feel like anytime in in life, you have to find your purpose and you have to give back uh, your community. Like I said, it's just a fundamental right to be able to vote. So that is one of the one of our basic rights. And you know, when you think about that, no bill was passed last legislative. Just, you know, it just makes you fight even the no more.
2: Veronica Bilbo is a formerly incarcerated Mississippian who has been free for four years but has not regained her right to vote. Coming up, the first baby box in Mississippi is dedicated on the Gulf Coast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
5: Whether you went to school before... During or after integration, you'll learn something you didn't know by watching The Harvest, a captivating film that tells the story of how school integration transformed the town of Leland, Mississippi. Sign up to attend one of the two screenings of this new American Experience film with panel discussions August 30th in Stoneville or on the 31st in Jackson. Learn more from mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio.
1: Mississippi Public
2: Broadcasting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Long Beach Central Fire Station is home to the first baby box in the state. Mississippi's safe haven law was amended this year to allow cities to install them at emergency service locations so parents can surrender their newborn to the state anonymously. Lawmakers claim the traditional process for adoption may be too steep a hurdle for some because of the stigma attached with it. The period in which a baby can be surrendered has been extended from seven days to 45 this year by lawmakers. Our Will Stribling speaks with Monica Kelsey. She's founder and CEO of the national nonprofit Safe Haven Baby Boxes. She says these boxes help keep infants safe and immediately notifies emergency responders when there's an infant inside.
1: The blessing was amazing. It had a tremendous turnout. Uh, It was just a a very nice blessing of the box, uh, opening it up for for women in this community.
0: Tell me what the baby box is bringing to the table, because, you know, in states like Mississippi, you know, we've had laws all the decades for books that that babies um, could be, uh, you know, uh, turned over at, um, you know, fire stations or hospitals um so so why do why do more communities need uh, baby boxes in your view
1: well you know i get that a lot is why are you going around the country spending thousands of dollars putting baby boxes in when we already have a law on the books you know that's been around for the last 20 years and yes the law has been around for the last 20 years but why are we still having abandoned babies you know and and so you have to ask yourself where are these babies being abandoned and why are they being abandoned there? And these babies, you know, that, that we're finding in locations that don't have baby boxes, they're being left at the doors of safe haven locations. You know, just this year or last year in, in the city of Chicago, a baby was was taken to a firehouse, placed in a duffel bag, wrapped in a tight blanket, and dropped at the door. And you you, you ask yourself, well, why didn't you? Why didn't this parent hand this child to this to the to the firefighter? And we'll never know that answer because this this incident you know, was not taken in. It was laid at the door and this, this infant actually died. And, and so, you know, the, the baby box takes the face-to-face interaction away that some feel um, threatened by. They, they might feel uh, judged or shamed. And this is just an opportunity for them to uh, save the life of their child, surrender their child if that's what they think is best for them and their child, but, but also do it in a safe way. And the baby box, again, is just an extension of the already existing safe haven law. And it just allows anonymity. You know, I didn't change anything in the process other than how a mother uh, surrenders her infant or father, you know, surrenders their infant under the protection of the the Mississippi state safe haven law.
0: What logistically, what what goes into getting a a baby box placed in somewhere like Long Beach? Like, What does it look like in, in terms of? partnerships with like in, in this case the fire department and then how much does like the the installation uh cost and also like the just the continual maintenance because i know that there are you know state regulations as far as like making checking the alarms and all that good stuff
1: so we don't go after locations locations are coming to us and um, there was a resident in the city of long beach that wanted this for their community and literally was on fire to get the law changed as well. And, and because she was relentless, um, she got the law changed, allowing this box to go in and then, of course, wanting this box and then pushed for it. And so we just walked alongside her as, as she brought this to her community. And, um, you know, the fire department does partner with us in this. We, we have to partner together because we do the marketing. You know, we do the push. We're in the schools um, and we're giving them just a tool to use in their toolbox You know, this is just something that that they have now where if a parent wants to utilize it, they can. If they want to walk into their firehouse and hand them a child, they still can. You know, we're not taking that away from them, but we're just giving them another tool in their toolbox to keep youngest residents of Long Beach safe.
0: Yeah, and can you just tell me a bit about, like, how many baby boxes there are across the country and how long it took uh, to get to that number, and then how many, um, how many babies have been um, given up through safe haven laws inside the, the baby boxes?
1: I launched my very first baby box in April of 2016 uh, at my firehouse in Woodburn. I'm a retired firefighter and medic, and the very first baby came in 2017. We got a second baby in 2018, and then it's grown all the way um, to uh, we've had 35 infants in our boxes and 133 handoffs. So we've we've impacted 160-some women and babies through the Safe Haven Baby Box program, whether it be by handoff or through the box. And today marked the 158th uh, Safe Haven Baby Box in America. And we also launched today in the 12th state in America. So there are 11 other states uh, now with Mississippi um, being the 12th state that allows for an anonymous surrender. Indiana, you know, when you look at, you know, what we've done and where we've been, Indiana was the first state we launched in. Um, we've had 25 of those 35 babies just in boxes in Indiana. And we've not had a dead infant in our state since we launched. And we were averaging one to two, sometimes three a year in the state of Indiana. And, and we haven't had a dead baby since. And we've had a record number of babies coming through our boxes. So when you when the Process is
2: implemented. The process works. Monica Kelsey is with the National Nonprofit Safe Haven Baby Boxes. Fire stations have long been the primary location for dropping off infants, though it can be dangerous for newborn left unattended. Long Beach Fire Chief Griff Skelly says it was a local nurse who helped spearhead the project to get the box installed and state laws updated.
5: She ran into some snags because of the way Mississippi Safe Haven Law was written. So she got in touch with some uh, representatives, some legislators, and they rewrote a bill and made it where uh, this was possible uh, to put these baby boxes in. Here we are today with the first one in the state of Mississippi installed here at Long Beach Fire Department.
0: Yeah, how does it feel to have that, the first one in, in your fire station?
5: We are honored to have it, to be honest with you. And in the fire service, we are all about saving lives. And this may give an opportunity to a parent that cannot take care of their child to get get that baby somewhere where it will get almost instant care. And I don't have to send a man into a life-hazardous area or a structure fire or what have you to try to save a life, they can walk down a hall and pick this baby up and save its life. So it's win-win for us.
0: And your tenure at the fire department has people could you know drop them off at fire station, fire stations or, or hospitals. Did that ever happen to y'all?
5: No, that had never happened to us. And, and what happened? And my understanding, this is my understanding, will. Um, the way that was is they had to hand that child over to someone and this is a no contact deal now this is a anonymous way to do this not speak to anyone not contact anyone just hand the baby over think what their biggest hopes for this and prayers for this is this stops any dumping of of babies you know in in places uh, that you know, uh, one will find them.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, you would think uh, Long Beach and surrounding area. You would think, oh, we don't have a we don't have a problem. Well, you don't know what you have because you know, in the middle of the night, in a location where there's not a camera, you don't know what's thrown in a dumpster and picked up the next day with a truck and gone to the landfill. You just don't know. That just kind of hurts my heart thinking that there's a living human going through that torture to start with. But it also bothers me that a mother out there has no other way to to relinquish that child, you know, except by handing it over, mm-hmm. you know, face to face. And I think this gives them another way out.
2: That's Long Beach Fire Chief Griff Skelly speaking with our Will Stribling. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.